0: This program is made possible by members and donors, so a huge thanks to everyone who contributes on Patreon to support the show. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall be looking at three of the white guys who say they're here to save the day. We start off with Mayor Pete Buttigieg, followed by Beta O'Rourke, and the rest on Joe Biden. Clips today come from The Majority Report, The Young Turks, Democracy Now!, The Michael Brooks Show, The Real News Network, the PBS NewsHour, and Humorless Queers.
1: The interesting thing about Beto at this point is, and, uh, you know, we're going to have more time to see if he comes out with, um... He's obviously going to come out with a platform. He's obviously going to get... you know, to some degree more specific. Um, he has a, a, a different problem than uh, Kamala Harris has. Kamala Harris, um, her policy, her platform, to the extent that she has a record, has been in the, uh, uh, the minority in the Senate, uh, not the same opportunity to vote for or against things necessarily over the years, Uh, but has to a certain extent in the in the Senate Um, and has a fairly good voting record. Nothing, um, you know, uh, for what it's worth, has a fairly good voting record, not such a great uh, record as a prosecutor. Beto O'Rourke does not have a good voting record as a Democratic lawmaker. And in fact, he has a bad one. From the perspective of a Democratic voter, I think from the perspective of a a, a Republican voter, probably um, a pretty good one. If you were a rational person in a Republican Party, if that would even makes any sense anymore. Um, And uh, so he's going to be a little bit evasive. And now there are some people coming out. There's a there was a Facebook post. And this isn't, you know. I think this is the only reason why I'm actually even reading this to some extent is that this is stuff that we were hearing during the race against Ted Cruz early on when we were talking about Beto, his name would come up and we'd say, look, he's not, he's not the kind of Democrat you would want if you were running in, you know, anywhere else. The Bronx. Or not just the Bronx, though. I'm not sure this is the kind of Democrat you'd want if you were in Pennsylvania, or in Ohio, or in Michigan, uh, certainly not California Hawaii, or Massachusetts. I mean, I think like this is the kind of uh, Democrat you would want if you were in Texas or North Dakota or West Virginia. It would probably start to not make some even sense.
2: West Virginia, because he doesn't have the kind of faux populism thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's probably a little bit more woke than uh, you want to be in West Virginia. I'll tell you what, um, Sam pretty goddamn woke el paso texas from a local standpoint is is pretty liberal right. i mean this is not you know texas is a big state there's a big difference between the bronx in new york and elmira in new york and el paso is more like the bronx to the rest of texas in in many respects um here is a uh a post And again, read this only because we I heard this during the primaries or excuse me, after the primary in the general election against um, Ted Cruz. And it makes a lot of sense. She uh, she says that she's a former Beto staffer. I was reluctantly very transparent about this. I did not vote for him in the 2018 primaries for a lot of reasons I'm about to dissect here. But at the end of the day, I stood behind him in the primary when it was him against Ted Cruz. I pretty much hate every single thing about Ted Cruz, she wrote. I worked my ass off for Beto. I worked seven days a week, 12 hour, 12 plus hours a day, along with hundreds of other staff. I gave it all in the capacity I was in to see that his Senate campaign was successful. I fractured my foot, still knocked on doors for him uh, on a scooter. I did all this while acknowledging that he was uh, far from the candidate I would have liked him to be. Uh, So and she's going on because she knows she's going to get hammered on there for for being less than uh, unified, I guess. I mean, I think, look. And she goes on to say, I I disagree wholeheartedly that discussion of Democratic candidates, strong points and weaknesses will hand Trump another four years. I wholeheartedly believe it's putting up a watered down candidate devoid of a bold platform substance and follow through that guarantees a Trump victory in 2020. I'm not convinced of that, but certainly I am convinced of the idea that um, putting up a candidate's strong points and weaknesses uh, is not only not going to help trump i think it's going to hurt trump and and then she goes into another piece i'm going to skip for the for the time being because i i'm not sure how much i uh, i'll come back to it but she goes on to talk about beto he's not progressive she says he's not a member of the progressive caucus that's true demonstrably true (laughs) he votes with republicans also demonstrably true and he praises the centrist middle as if it's some sort of virtue He had an opportunity to back a great Democrat running against a Republican, Will Hurd. We'll get to this uh, later. And he opted to remain silent to use the bipartisanship as a talking point to focus a lot of his campaign strategy and rhetoric on courting the white middle road voters who are actually just Republicans that were disillusioned with Ted Cruz. He rationalizes his vote for the Blue Lives Matters bill, uh, but voted against the Harvey bill because he said it wasn't good enough. But the Blue Lives Matter bill was good enough, she asks. He goes on to say he had an opportunity to prove he could be a bold leader by being at the forefront of the baby jail and asylum issue at the border of Texas. He went and he toured the facilities, but then he took no positions. He could have called to to abolish ICE, but he belittled it as a bumper sticker slogan, as if the rest of his campaign is not merely a bumper sticker slogans. Uh, there was enormous grassroots energy around the issue at the time. And it had national spotlight by many media outlets. People would have overwhelmingly had more respect for him by taking a stand, particularly in the Valley, where his rhetoric didn't resonate at all and people didn't turn out for him. Now, with that said. Maybe he's just strategizing. I can't go that far. I'm running in Texas. That's my uh, editorial. Uh, she goes on to say he and his family are known gentrifiers in El Paso. His wife has a long history of ushering in charter schools in El Paso, working for them, serving on schoolchoice.org uh, boards, charter schools. And she goes on to talk about charter schools. I hope uh, no one listening to the sound of my voice who's been listening to this program for more than a couple months uh, needs me to explain the problem with charter schools and, um, Particularly in Texas. Particularly in Texas. He campaigns as if he's pro Medicare for all, but he's never signed on to HR six seventy-six, despite being confronted by voters about it seemingly hundreds of times on the campaign trail. Um he comes in only second to Ted Cruz and the contributions he takes from oil and gas industry. And everybody's talking about his performance in Texas as if he didn't lose. The fact is he overperformed. You got to go. If you look at Obama to Clinton, Texas is trending. We're not there yet and he outperformed uh, Clinton by 3 or 4 points, but it's also it's Ted Cruz <laughs> who even uh some of the Trumpistas were are not motivated about. But so that's from this uh Facebook poster Uh, a former uh, staffer, take it for what it's worth.
3: Many have compared him to Obama, and perhaps this is one of the reasons why. Other factors, such as his young age and inexperience, also play a role, although Obama had a little more experience on the national stage as a senator. Since he's only held office as a mayor in Indiana, it's difficult to predict how he would govern as president. All of the other Democratic candidates have records that we can delve into and votes we can analyze. But that's not necessarily the case with Buttigieg. However, we can look at his funding and where he's previously worked. When it comes to money in politics, Buttigieg has accepted contributions from donors in the past. His top donors from 2018, just last year, include Gurley Leap Automotive Group president Mike Leap, who donated $10,000. Engineering firm Mueller Group CEO Michael Hinton, who donated $7,500. And Mark Neal, the COO of the real estate firm Bradley Company, who donated about $4,500. Buttigieg's top corporate donors last year included Michigan's Four Winds Casino and Michigan-based Selge Construction Company. These donations are important to keep in mind because Mayor Pete wanted to rebuild areas of South Bend that were riddled with deserted homes. His 1,000 Homes in 1,000 Days initiative clearly caught the attention of donors who wanted municipal construction contracts. Look, Buttigieg created a political committee called Pete for DNC as he was seeking DNC chairmanship in 2017. He wasn't chosen as DNC chair. However, he raised more than half a million dollars in the first six months of 2017 alone. Top contributors included Carolyn Schwab Pomerantz, who's the senior vice president of Charles Schwab. She gave about $10,000. Facebook chief product officer, Chris Cox, who gave and Facebook co-founder Chris Hughes, who gave $5,000. Look, to be fair, as Buttigieg runs for president, he has pledged to take no corporate PAC money. He has also agreed to reject donations from the fossil fuel industry.
2: Hi, everybody. It's Mayor Pete, and today I am signing the no fossil fuel money pledge. This is a commitment that our campaign will not be financed by contributions from the PACs, the executives, or the front groups of the fossil fuel industry. Climate change is one of the most important issues facing uh, the world. And so I want to make sure that our campaign is helping to lead by example.
3: So let's take a look at Mayor Pete's job history. When it comes to his job history, there are some concerns. According to the Center for Public Integrity, after Buttigieg graduated from the University of Oxford with a coveted Rhodes Scholarship, he worked for three years at the consulting firm McKinsey & Company, focusing on energy and economic development. McKinsey Group has been riddled with controversy over the years. The company was instrumental in helping pharmaceutical companies like Purdue push painkillers like OxyContin. In his book, The Shortest Way Home, Buttigieg describes his experience at McKinsey Group as a great learning experience. When New York Magazine asked him about this, he simply replied that he hadn't followed the story about Purdue Pharma. That's a strange thing to say, as the country is still suffering from an opioid addiction and overdose epidemic. McKinsey Group also collaborated with the Saudi government. And when New York Magazine asked Buttigieg about that, he replied, quote, I think you have a lot of smart, well-intentioned people who sometimes view the world in a very innocent way. I wrote my thesis on Graham Greene, who said that innocence is like a dumb leper that has lost his bell, wandering the world, meaning no harm. But the cruelty and brutality of the Saudis is well known, especially among political consultants. Playing dumb is a pretty pathetic and sleazy way of making excuses for past flaws, One of the major political issues Americans in general care most about is income and wealth inequality. Current affairs writer Nathan Robinson points to a portion of Buttigieg's book where he writes about a 2001 progressive protest at Harvard. The students demanded higher pay for custodial and food workers on campus. Buttigieg mentions how dismissive he was toward the protesters, writing, quote, that spring, a daily diversion on the way to class was to see which national figure, cornell West or Ted Kennedy one day, John Kerry or Robert Reich, another, had turned up in the yard to encourage the protesters. Striding past protesters and the politicians addressing them On my way to a pizza and politics session with a journalist like Matt Bai or governor like Howard Dean, I did not guess that the students poised to have a greatest near-term impact were not the social justice warriors at the protests, but a few mostly apolitical geeks who were quietly at work in Kirkland House, Zuckerberg et al., First, it's strange to me that a Democrat who seems to be positioning himself as a progressive would refer to these protesters as social justice warriors, which is a right-wing talking point meant to belittle people. But more importantly, why didn't he see the value in that protest? He referred to it as a diversion. These were workers on the same campus, the wealthiest college in the world, or at least one of the wealthiest colleges in the world. His reaction to the protest demonstrated a giant disconnect between the working poor and his proud elitism. Since we're on the topic of higher ed, let's talk about Mayor Pete's views on college affordability. Buttigieg is not as far to the left as some progressives are, or at least as some progressive voters would want him to be when it comes to combating the issue of student loan debt. Stephanie Murray from Political tweets that Buttigieg on Free College says, Americans who have a college degree earn more than Americans who don't. As a progressive, I have a hard time getting my head around the idea. A majority who earn less because they didn't go to college subsidize a minority who earn more because they did. Buttigieg calls for states to cover higher proportions of the cost than students, more generous and accessible programs for loan forgiveness, and looking at interest rates to refinance loans. Oh, okay. So between 2008 and 2018, student loan debt increased 144%. Obama-like incremental changes aren't gonna do the trick here. Taxpayers subsidize all sorts of nonsense when it comes to preemptive wars like the war in Iraq or the Saudi-led war in Yemen. Maybe if we subsidize higher education effectively, more Americans would go to college. An educated population benefits the entire country, not just the individuals who graduated. And the ever-growing student loan debt dramatically hinders the U.S. economy. Finally, I want to talk about Mayor Pete's views on Israel. Alex Ward over at Vox writes that during a March campaign stop in Iowa, Buttigieg said he wants America to help make a world where Israelis and Palestinians are able to live in peace side by side. Overall, though, Buttigieg has shown a willingness to back Israel, which isn't too far-fetched, right? A lot of our politicians do it. Anyway, Ward continues to write that Buttigieg strongly rejected condemnations of Israel and U.S. support for it, made by progressive lawmakers. Buttigieg has described Israel as a model for the U.S. in how to deal with security threats. He's blamed most of the suffering in Gaza on Hamas, the Palestinian Islamic political organization and militant group that has run the territory since 2007. On this issue, it's easy to contrast Buttigieg with the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Take presidential candidate Bernie Sanders as an example, who, according to Vox, has repeatedly condemned Israel for violence at its border with Gaza, where time and time again, Israeli forces have killed mostly unarmed protesters, including women and children, pleading for an end to the decade-long Israeli blockade of food, fuel, and medicine. Buttigieg seems to blame the hardships of the Palestinian people on the poor governing of Hamas, saying, quote, most people aren't aware of the difference between what's happening in Gaza run by Hamas in the way that is contributing to a lot of misery there, but also totally different than an environment where you'd have a negotiating partner across the table. And look, while Hamas certainly is a problem and has failed to govern the territory in an effective and positive way, it's critical to point to the role of Israelis' blockade of humanitarian efforts in Gaza. There's also the question of Iran and whether Israel's right-wing government will persuade whoever becomes the next president to invade Iran. Buttigieg seems to go along with Israel's notion that Iran serves as a threat to their security.
2: They've also got to figure out and we've got to figure out with them as an ally what the regional security picture is going to look like in the future. We we were just a couple miles from Gaza and the general who was briefing our delegation uh, said what they're worried about most is Iran uh, beyond even what's going on with the Palestinians. It has always been one of the most fiendishly complicated issues and simple answers uh, will not serve us well at a time like this.
3: I'm sure we'll learn more about Mayor Pete as the election season heats up. Like many candidates, he's a mixed bag, but it is interesting to see how many of these candidates run as strong progressives. It's clear that there's a thirst for progressive policies in the Democratic Party. The question is, which candidates actually believe what their campaign platform entails? It's not easy to figure out what a candidate is really gonna do, especially when he or she doesn't have much of a record to go off of.
0: If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. You know, basically the one company online. Lots of evil tendencies, owned by the richest dude in the world, that one. Chances are you shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases, I know some of you do. Or maybe you have a standard selection of home goods you get delivered regularly. In any case... You might have some mixed feelings about it, you'd be right to, but if you do end up using the site, at least you can help siphon off some of that corporate blood money to help support the production of this show. Your shopping experience will be identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. You can get the affiliate link from the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you can find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. You can bookmark the link so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think, I promise it does, and the more who join in, the the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time.
4: A longtime senator from Delaware, Biden has previously run twice for the Democratic nomination, last time in 2008, when he ultimately became then-Senator Barack Obama's running mate. While a new campaign would seek to capitalize on Biden's two terms as vice president, it would also invite scrutiny of a Senate record in a Democratic political climate that's notably more progressive today than it was when Biden last sought the nomination. Joe Biden's 1994 crime bill, while implications— implementing sweeping gun control, also helped fuel mass incarceration with financial incentives to keep people behind bars. This is Joe Biden, Senator Joe Biden, speaking in 1993 during the debate on the Senate crime bill. The clip was recently unearthed by CNN.
5: We must take back the streets. It doesn't matter whether or not the person that is accosting your son or daughter, or my son or daughter, my wife, your husband, my mother, your parents—it doesn't matter whether or not they were deprived as a youth. It doesn't matter or not whether or not they had no background that enabled them to have to uh, become uh, uh, social, uh, become socialized into the fabric of society. It doesn't matter whether or not they're the victims of society. The end result is they're about to knock my mother on the head with a lead pipe, shoot my sister, beat up my wife, take on my sons. So I don't want to ask, what made them do this? They must be taken
4: off the street. Senator Biden went on to describe criminals as predators.
5: If we don't, they will, or a portion of them will, become the predators 15 years from now. And, Madam President, we have predators on our streets that society has, in fact, in part because of its neglect, created.
4: Joe Biden also known for close ties to the financial industry, notably helping push through a 2005 bill that made it harder for consumers to declare bankruptcy. According to The New York Times, the credit card issuer, MBNA, was Biden's top donor from 1989 to 2010. One of his key legislative achievements was the 2005 bankruptcy law that made it harder to reduce student debt, preventing most Americans from claiming bankruptcy protections for private student loans. Well, well, to continue our conversation on Joe Biden and his possible presidential run, we go to Washington D.C. to talk with Washington editor for Harper's Magazine, Andrew Coburn. His latest piece for Harper's, headlined "No Joe: Joe Biden's Disastrous Legislative Legacy," I wanted to talk about Iraq. Um, in 2002, former chief UN weapons inspector in Iraq, Scott Ritter, said, "Quote: Senator Joe Biden's running a sham hearing. It's clear." Biden and most of the congressional leadership have preordained a conclusion that seeks to remove Saddam Hussein from power, regardless of the facts, and are using these hearings to provide political cover for a massive military attack on Iraq. These hearings have nothing to do with an objective search for the truth, but rather seek to line up like-minded witnesses who will buttress this predetermined result. Ritter said that same year in 2002, Senator Biden said, quote, We must be clear with the American people that we're committing to Iraq for the long haul, not just the day after, but the decade after. I'm absolutely confident the president will not take us to war alone, he said. Talk about the significance of that then and then what it could mean for today.
6: Well, it fits into, you know, Biden's, you know, worldview or well behavior on the international stage throughout, which is as a, you know, very hard line hawk. Um, you know, as you've just said, as, or as, you, as Ritter said at the time, Biden was really doing everything he could to assist George Bush in the run up to the illegal invasion of Iraq. Um, you know, as, as on the Foreign Relations Committee, uh, you know, he summoned just, you know, pro-invasion witnesses. Um, As far as I know, he was certainly not one of the famous of the five senators who took the the trouble to go down and read the national intelligence estimate that, you know, Senator Bob Graham has talked about, which was locked away down in the basement, which would have told them that there was a lot of doubts in the intelligence community as to whether Saddam had uh, weapons of mass destruction and so forth. No, he just, you know, he wanted— he, you know, he was all for war, uh, and he was all for occupation, as you said, and that fits in with you know um, his record since. He's uh, most notably uh, as as vice president, Obama made made him made uh, vice president Biden gave him really the Iraq the well the Iraq file, but also the Ukraine file. And Biden used that to be an ardent proponent of, you know, more arms for Ukraine, for intervention in what is really a civil war in Ukraine. Um, Of course, his family, his son, had very extensive business ties in Ukraine, which doesn't look too good, his son, Hunter. Uh, was on the board of the Ukrainian Gas Company. Um, so, you know, Biden, whenever he's been given the chance, um, he's been for armed intervention. Um, he was ardently for the uh, expansion of NATO, the post-1990—in uh, post uh, the 1990s, which, you know, is really the root cause of the renewed sort of the new Cold War—I mean, Biden was there—it's um, no, no surprise that he describes John McCain as his best friend in the Senate.
4: Uh, Biden also said in 2002, I do not believe this is a rush to war. I believe it's a march to peace and security.
7: I want to throw to you in a second, but first we do have to play this clip of last week. Joe Biden has an answer to people like us
1: on the new left, Zach.
8: I know I get criticized. I'm told I get criticized by the new left. I have the most progressive record of anybody running for the United Anybody who would run.
7: So, Zach. If we stipulate, and, and I'm kind of doing this site, not just facetiously, because I do want to get to that stuff later if we have time. But if we stipulated for Joe Biden that with the exception of the invasion of Iraq, a massive expansion of prisons, a bill on behalf of credit card companies, which made it easy, uh, much, much more difficult for working people to get out of financial traps, mishandling the Anita Hill hearings and being part of the drone program and offering a grand bargain in 20 uh, 2011 which would have cut social security and medicare besides that does he have one of the most progressive records you can imagine uh, the short answer is no uh, <laughs> okay. the, i think we're accustomed to thinking about the split in the democratic party as something that's sort of um, something that sort of developed in the 2016 presidential cycle, that, that the Democratic Party was sort of a happy, harmonious place where there are people who, with different ideas on a spectrum, who, who but who more or less agreed with each other. And then suddenly in 2016, it became clear that there was a faction of of what Biden is now calling the no, the New Left, but you know, which called itself progressive for the years prior to that, and uh, and and the party leadership essentially. And that split did not start in 2016. In fact, it's been uh, an ongoing intraparty conflict going all the way back to the 1970s. And throughout that struggle uh, over the direction and meaning what, what it means to be a Democrat, really, Joe Biden has consistently been on the side of conservative factions in the party. He was sort of a Bill Clinton before Bill Clinton, uh, openly uh, referred to himself as a Bill Clinton before Bill Clinton, uh, by the end of the Clinton presidency, sort of took credit for the, the ideas that had, had motivated the Clinton presidency, which I think now, uh, certainly people listening to your podcast, uh, are aware there's a large community of Democrats who, who wants, wants to break from that legacy. Doesn't, doesn't see the Clinton years as, as a badge of honor, but sees it as a source of, of, of shame. Um, it's not just mass incarceration it's not just a bankruptcy bill you know in the early 1980s uh joe biden got most of his sort of progressive or lefty credentials from foreign policy but on domestic policy he was very closely allied not only with uh the reagan administration but with the most right-wing elements of the republican party so he allied with Strom thurman and jesse helms on school segregation uh during the early 1980s uh and has never really addressed why he did that in the decades since. Uh, before the 1980s, even, um, there was a split within the Democratic Party over how to deal with the growing power of large corporations. Uh, Ted Kennedy, who has you know come down in history as, as a, you know one of the more liberal elements of the Democratic Party establishment, wanted to use his position as chair of the Judiciary Committee in the 1970s to go after big corporations and to attack concentrations of corporate power. His biggest... Opponent In that effort was Joe Biden. Uh, so this is a a an ideological split that has been around for a long time. And Joe Biden was not he didn't make a secret about about where he stood on on these things. Uh, and the idea that he is a a more progressive candidate uh, than than others based on his record. Uh, it just simply doesn't hold up to, uh, to historical scrutiny. He may be a different person today than he was in 1975. I think most people his age probably are. Uh, but his record is, is just not uh, – is, is it just doesn't hold up next to uh, Elizabeth Warren's, next to Bernie Sanders. Uh, there, it's just – it's It's
9: absurd.
10: He really was the senator from the credit card companies and from the big banks. And he really served their interests with a vengeance. Virtually all the students in this country and former students who are overloaded with onerous debt can thank, quote unquote, Joe Biden because he pushed through a bankruptcy bill that made it much more difficult to use the bankruptcy laws the advantage of people who are up against the wall financially he made credit card companies much stronger in ripping people off to the tune of literally billions of dollars in this country he's been very uh willing to front for companies like comcast uh, which uh, in that case comcast is by polling the most hated company in america mm-hmm. and yet Biden, on his first day of this campaign, chose to be side-by-side with the vice president and chief lobbyist, in effect, for Comcast. And so it's a very anti-union company. And so the contradictions are huge. His rhetoric has always been, or usually been, uh, very palatable for liberal-inclined people. It's when you look at his record uh, that you see how he has been such a servant of oligarchy of de facto racism, of militarism, as in the case of the invasion of Iraq, where he refused to allow any dissenting voices for people to testify in the pivotal hearings he chaired of the Foreign Relations Committee in the lead up to that horrible uh, war and the invasion that uh, got it started. So, as I've looked more and more into Biden's record, you know, I never thought he was great. But I just didn't realize uh, what a tremendous fraud he is. And I think it really is going to be essential that progressives and others go beyond the media gloss because the Washington Press Corps adores this guy. They puff him up almost without exception. And it's very notable, Jacqueline, I really think we should uh, just flag this point. Polling is showing that for one quarter of the voters who say they support Bernie Sanders in this primary, their second choice is Joe Biden. And that says to me that the education needs to happen so that people understand really who Joe Biden is and who he's fronting for.
11: You know, and I'm glad you raised that point, that Voters need to be educated on who Joe Biden really is because you wrote an article uh, called Joe Biden Puffery Versus Reality. And it's a pretty comprehensive examination of his record. Um, and we know that, you know, Twitter has been good at doing what Twitter does. It's been uh, bringing out all the receipts. Sean King has tweeted uh, several uh, um, uh, issues about, uh, literally highlighted three decades of bad policies from Biden in one tweet. But there is a series of tweets from him and other people uh, highlighting his his really bad policies on uh, criminal justice and racial issues, certainly the Anita Hill issue. But he, here's the, the big issue that I think that we are kind of missing, because you brought up the issue of Biden being the credit card candidate. Uh, His first fundraiser was sponsored by Comcast and Blue Cross Blue Shield. So it's interesting that uh, people who say they will vote for Sanders, their second choice is Biden. If you're voting for Sanders for Medicare for All and Sanders doesn't get the nomination, Blue Cross Blue Shield is not going to support Medicare for All by backing Biden. So the question I need to ask you is, even though all of this is true about Biden and his terrible record that we've examined and we're we're educating people on, at the end of the day, this race just might come down to who the elite can bankroll to win against Trump. Uh, How do you feel about that? Because small donor campaign funding uh, and independent media has made it harder for corporate interests to outright buy an election, but Biden's already being supported by corporate giants. So, so how, do, how do progressives win against that?
10: The only way we can win is, as Bernie Sanders has said, an unprecedented grassroots campaign. The conventional wisdom has been shattered that you need the big checks and the big oligarchs to come in and make a presidential campaign viable. Uh, Biden is way behind in fundraising, and that's why uh, he has felt it necessary from the outset to do something that has terrible optics for uh, any progressive paying attention, to stand shoulder to shoulder with uh, the Comcast and the uh, insurance company giants that have been ripping us off with cable bills every month, opposing net neutrality, opposing Medicare for All, Gouging us when we come into the hospital or the doctor's office. And so it is a historic crossroads as to whether the power of big money, uh, corporate interests, and uh, de facto economic suppression of the vast majority of the population, whether that is going to triumph over, pardon the cliche, the power of the people, because that is the only hope for the Sanders campaign. And that is the only hope to block Joe Biden. I mean, I have to say at this point that I think he is the worst Democratic candidate or president of any who has a ghost of a chance of winning. He is absolutely a throwback to the worst aspects of the Democratic Party during the last half century.
0: This show runs on recurring donations from listeners just like you who've signed up to support the show on Patreon. Each hour-long episode we produce is the result of literally dozens of hours of work. Usually about 30 hours of source material has to be listened to, sifted, curated. I go through multiple rounds of editing and refining of the content before almost all of it is discarded and the final selection is made to produce the show. In short... A lot of effort goes into the production of the show because we care deeply about not just providing good ideas and getting them out into the world, but in finding the best versions of the best ideas we possibly can. Due to this high workload, we end up with a relatively low turnout of the show. You know, we only put out two episodes a week, which means we have less than half the opportunity to bring in ad revenue than if we were doing a live-to-tape five-days-a-week show. And that's why direct support is so important. So if you get value out of the show and you want to support the work that makes it possible, the most important thing you can do is become a member on Patreon. Members get to listen to an ad-free version of the show, participate each week in a poll that helps decide which topics we're going to cover, and they receive bonus clips and commentary in separate members-only episodes. You can sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash bestofleft, and thanks so much for your support.
12: Some of former Vice President Joe Biden's past personal behavior is sparking conversations about boundaries when it comes to physical contact and consent. They go beyond himself to questions about social norms that were once tolerated by many women, but may no longer be acceptable. To be clear, none of the public accusations about Mr. Biden's actions approach sexual assault or serious misconduct. What the four women who have spoken out recently including Lucy Flores, a former Nevada state legislator, have said is that they were uncomfortable when Biden either hugged them, kissed them, or touched them inappropriately. Biden addressed the matter on Twitter today.
8: In my career, I've always tried to make a human connection. That's my responsibility, I think. I shake hands, I hug people, I I grab men and women by the shoulders and say you can do this. And, and uh, whether they're women, men, young, old, it's, it's the way I've always been. It's the way I've tried to show I care about them and I'm listening. And over the years, knowing what I've been through, the things that I've faced, I've found that scores, if not hundreds of people, have come up to me and reached out for solace and comfort. Social norms have begun to change. They've shifted. And the boundaries of protecting personal space have been reset. And I get it. I get it. I hear what they're saying. I understand it. And I'll be much more mindful. That's my responsibility. My responsibility, and I'll meet it.
12: So that was on Twitter today, and now let's look at some of the issues surrounding all of this. Rebecca Traister is a writer for New York Magazine and for The Cut. She's author of Good and Mad, the Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger. Karen Tumulty is a columnist covering national politics for The Washington Post. And Frank Dobbin is a sociologist at Harvard University who studies sexual harassment and diversity training. And we welcome all three of you to the news hour let me first get your reaction just your your take on what the vice president had to say today karen tumulty you first
4: well, I think that this uh, shows, among other things, sort of how rusty he is at this. His initial response to this was essentially to say to the women who were accusing him of making them uncomfortable, was to say, I'm sorry that your feelings got hurt. Uh, this is a very different kind of statement. This is him sort of acknowledging that the fault lies in, in his own actions and promising to, to change those
13: actions.
12: Professor Dobbin what about you how did you read what uh, what the vice president said
13: well i think it's a little surprising that he didn't follow the issue over the last nearly 40 years since he was in the clarence thomas hearings in 1991 uh but i think it's a indication of kind of a generational shift um there's a generation of people that just hasn't really been aware of what kinds of changes in social norms there are and uh in this case, he at least acknowledges that he was out of sync with what's going on.
12: Rebecca Troyster, how did you hear him? Well, I do think that especially the final part about
14: acknowledging that norms are changing and that and that he's engaged in this conversation is what he needed to say, but he did need to say it five days ago and really... You know, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, two years ago, he's billed himself of late as somebody who's very interested in these issues. He is involved with It's On Us, talking about um issues around changing norms around gender and power, and yet he was very slow to respond with what he needed to say. And what he doesn't address in this statement is the degree to which norms are also changing around the role. The paternalism of that kind of touching is also reflected in his policy record. He's been in power for for 40 years in the Senate as, or 30 years in the Senate and then as vice president. And he has also had a sort of paternalistic role in his positions on abortion, reproductive health, his role as the head of the judiciary in the Anita Hill hearings. He's had, he needs to address a lot about um, what has shifted in our politics and our norms and our ideas about gender and power.
13: Well, there has been a change in norms since 1991 in the Clarence Thomas hearings. Um, What we generally recognize explicitly as okay and as not okay has changed pretty dramatically. Things like trying to date someone at work. But this kind of behavior is, he would call it um, just emotional behavior. He would just call it part of the way he does his job. Uh, one of the things that I find disturbing is that we've, we've, we've undergone a pretty massive social experiment since the early 1990s. In 1991, at the time of the Clarence Thomas hearing, about 25% of medium and large companies had some kind of harassment training. Right. By the end of the 1990s, about 75% had some kind of harassment training. But if you look at, um, reports of harassment and surveys of workplace harassment, harassment hasn't really declined very much in that time. So, I think at the extreme ends of the continuum when you think about what's okay and what's not okay, uh, you know, we know that sexual assault at work is widely viewed as not okay and that trying to date an underling is and is persistently trying to date an underling is considered to be not okay, but a lot of the stuff in the middle people haven't gotten the message about and that's one of the reasons we still see high rates of harassment.
12: Rebecca, how clear is it what is okay and what isn't okay right now in the workplace, in a, in a public setting?
14: Well, I think the question of, of clarity is a tough one because when you're changing norms... You are you're literally changing the rules in the middle of a game. But there's no other real way to do it. Right. So and that's I think when when Professor Dobbin talked about the generational shift, you have people who were born in an era in which certain kinds of behavior were normalized before the term sexual harassment was was even coined, which wasn't until 1975, which, by the way, is after Joe Biden was already elected to the Senate, which happened in 1972. So we are changing the ideas about what is permissible, and also the interrogation of, of what kind of power, the sort of access to women's bodies, what does it mean to be a powerful man who feels he can, you know, what he sees as emotional connection, but winds up being uncomfortable physical touch with a woman who is his junior, but in his field, a peer. These women are, you know, working with him or other politicians. The game is changing. And that means that there's not always a clear answer. But the mm. key thing is, you have to listen to the people who are telling you, this feels like it's conveying something that is uncomfortable to me or that conveys that you don't think of me as an equal. It feels diminishing. We have to listen to the conversation about it before we can just say, okay, this is okay. This is not okay. It is an ongoing and evolving process of trying to change the way we approach power and gender.
15: The really- Wanted to have you on because you wrote an article for Current Affairs last week called How Not to Talk About Uncomfortable Shoulder Rubs. <laughs> um, and your Twitter is like generally amazing, and everyone should follow you. Um, but I appreciate what you haven't currently, uh, as of today, we are recording on April 6th in your pinned tweet that links to this article and it just says, Look what you made me do. Yes. <laughs> so, yes. this article <laughs> is, is about joe biden and i think pretty much everyone hopefully probably listening to this show has been rage following the story in the same way that i am but just in case you're not i thought maybe we should start with like a little recap if folks don't know in late march lucy flores she's a former nevada assemblywoman um talked about an interaction with with biden that made her uncomfortable and she talked about it in a piece for the cut and flores explained what happened in 2014 and you quote this in your piece she writes I felt him get closer to me from behind. Wait, hold on, hold on, hold, he hold on. Further. Wait, Alexis, I, I, critical context on stage. This was on a stage, right? On stage, publicly. Yes. Okay. Which, which we've seen this sort of pattern, right? Of Biden doing things, yes. in front of cameras constantly.
14: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
15: Uh, so he leans in. He. Uh, so i'll just read the quote he leaned in further and inhaled my hair i was mortified i thought to myself i didn't wash my hair today and the vice president of the united states is smelling it and also what in the actual fuck (laughs) why is the vice president (laughs) of the united states smelling my hair he proceeded to plant a big slow kiss on the back of my head and can we just pause here for a second and like that's fucking nasty why disgusting Anyway, she (laughs) writes, uh, she goes on, My brain couldn't process what was happening. I was embarrassed. I was shocked. I was confused. There's a Spanish saying, Traga me tierra. It means earth, swallow me whole. I couldn't move and I couldn't say anything. I wanted nothing more than to get Biden away from me. My name was called and I was never happier to get on stage in front of an audience. So the story goes on. There's more that's happened, but I don't know if you all just have, like what were your initial reactions when this story very first broke? Because mine was just like, I, this is particularly crazy, but like, I, like, I've had a million things random like this happen that were like, just, you know, like people don't respect other people's personal space. Yeah. And I'm, and it's really not hard to do that.
16: Yeah. And with Joe Biden, I'm surprised that it took that long. I mean, it was, it wasn't a surprise in the sense that like we, I expected that post-Me Too, someone would come forward and say that they had been made uncomfortable by this person. Um, and I just, for me, it was like a matter of time. I was like, okay, we're here. It's, this is not the person who I thought would be speaking up. But at the same time, you know, he has so many rubbed shoulders in his trail. So, um, you know, I figured someone would come forward.
15: What frustrates me about this is that, like, so Joe Biden was part of a campaign that was, like, anti-campus sexual assault. So, like, ostensibly, this is a guy who's, like, who, quote, unquote, gets it, who, like, wants to reduce violence, you know, in our society, wants to reduce harms. And, like, you know, this is the thing that a lot of the people are running out and saying. They're like, oh, well, well, Trump assaulted women and biden just did this other thing and they're trying to make this like a spectrum of like abuse and they're like, well, this is not that bad and this is really bad. But the problem is like anyone that knows anything about assault knows that it's about power and knows that like Mm -hmm. consent is a crucial concept in preventing assault. So you can't say that consent matters when it's about sex and it doesn't matter when it's about just getting up in someone's personal space. If you wanna be someone who ostensibly understands how violence (laughs) works, right? And how to prevent violence and Biden is someone who's tried to be like, I get it, I'm trying to work to prevent this, so I'm going to hold you to a higher standard, right? And also, you <laughs> want to be the president, right? So we're also going to try and hold you to the higher standard. And also,
14: sorry, let's ne- never, ever, ever compare people to Donald Trump, okay? Right. Just, like, yeah, never, just ever like do that. like that, because why, why, why would, would you, you do, do that? that? And so yeah. it
15: frustrates me <laughs> that, like, he is, like, uh talking about intent, so we, we've we sort of gotten a little bit off track, so we've missed some of the things that have happened, right? So first, Biden did this video where he talks about, like, it, it, he, did, he never apologizes in the video, but he talks about how norms have changed, social norms have begun to change, and he says, I get it, I hear what they're saying, I understand it, right? Uh, they've shifted, and the boundaries of protecting personal space have been reset. Now, first of all, I don't even buy that. Uh, I just think that like women are now and everyone are empowered to be like, you are violating my space in a way that we didn't feel necessarily empowered to before. But that's what he says. But what gets my like made me so frustrated yesterday is he's claiming to get it and claiming to be listening and saying he's going to change his behavior. And the very next day, the very next day, he goes to this union event for the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers Construction Conference, IBEW. And he makes mm-hmm. it totally clear that he doesn't get it. And he gets on stage, and he jokes after hugging the IBEW president Lonnie Stevenson. He says, I just want you to know I have permission to hug Lonnie. Ha 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 ha. And then this crowd full of mostly white men goes, ha 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 ha. And then he sees some kids, and he puts his arm around one of the boys, and then he goes back to the mic and says, I just want, you know you know he gave me permission to touch him. Ha 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 ha. ha. And then he goes outside the event and he gives an interview and he literally says, I am not sorry for anything that I have ever done. <laughs> i've never been disrespectful <laughs> and that's a direct quote <laughs> i'm not making this up the full quote is he does say i am sorry i didn't understand more but then he immediately says i am not sorry for any of my intentions i am not sorry for anything that i have ever done i've never been disrespectful <laughs> intentionally to a man or a woman um and vanessa this just kind of goes back to your piece to me right like and how you're like i can't believe i have to write this and i feel like you very patiently explain in the piece a lot of really basic fundamental concepts um <laughs> <laughs> that i feel like it's really unfortunate that we should have to explain but one of the thing that you point out quite rightly um in sort of talking about some of the people who've rushed forward to defend biden Uh, You write, quote, the fact that a person's touch in a wholly different context did not make you personally uncomfortable says literally nothing whatsoever about whether this person has ever made another person uncomfortable. And it reminded me of a far less gracious way someone said it on Twitter. I don't remember who, but they were like, you said this person murdered someone. But here I am before you not being murdered, (laughs) not having been murdered.
16: Uh, So, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I really wish people would take a step back and ask themselves why they are now sharing stories about positive stories about Joe Biden, you know, like being hugged by Joe Biden in a way that made them feel fine. Someone wrote a whole um, essay for The Atlantic about how her children have met Joe Biden a couple of times and he hugs them and it was fine. And I'm like, that's a nice story, ma'am. Why are you, but like, what is the purpose of you coming forward with this story now? Like, is your, is your intent to cast doubt on other stories that have been shared? Are you saying that based on your experience, you personally don't believe that he could have done this, that he could have made other, uh, women or girls uncomfortable with he's touching and he's nuzzling like i just switch i I just don't think people are putting in a lot of thoughts behind um you know like sharing their own experiences i think that some people are telling themselves that like well if we're you know i want to make sure the record out there is balanced right so for every bad story of a now that people have shared bad stories about Biden, I feel like it's only fair that I share my good stories about Biden. Um, and I think people, and I wrote this in my article, I think people tell themselves that it's a harmless thing to do, when in reality, it's it's like the real intent behind sharing a positive story is to make the victim look like, to either make it look as though... Um, you know, there's like some kind of analogy between the way you were touched and this other person who feels like a victim was touched. And the takeaway should be that the person who views themselves as a victim is overreacting to how they were touched by Biden. Or, um, you know, the the other reason would be to basically cast shadow on the fact that that anything negative happened at all, that anything like that, that we should all that things that we should be uncomfortable with like happened at all, if that makes sense.
15: Um, yeah, it's like casting doubt on Lucy Flores and casting doubt on. Yeah. Uh, what's her name? Amy Lappos, I think. And there's Amy been Lappos. and there's been subsequent people who've come out since. There's been a bunch of different accounts. I I haven't been able to keep. I think we're up to seven, maybe. Yeah, there was one who was someone who was a former staffer of Joe Biden, Alexandra Tara Reed. In 1993, said he used to put his hand on my shoulder and run his finger up my neck, and they asked her to serve drinks at an event, and she refused, and apparently was demoted. So like there's a lot of stuff out there and I totally agree with you right like when you come out and say well nothing bad happened to me like the implicit like the implication in, in there is so Lucy Flores must not be telling the truth so you know Amy Lapos must not be telling the truth and and that's not good solidarity that's not like believing women and believing people yeah. that talk about the ways that they've been
16: harmed and it's just counterproductive the other thing that I find strange is that if most of the people who have come forward have not been staffers of Biden. Um, they are not people that he had control over in, you know, in like a workspace or anything. But, but if, if they had been staffers of his, I think it would have pretty clearly fallen under a form of sexual harassment. Mm-hmm. You know, like I don't think that's ambiguous at all. Like you look at the EEOC guidelines and it's just like pretty clear, like you can't just, run your hands up and down the thighs of people who work for you. That's unacceptable, you know, and, and it would be like a pretty uh, clear cut case. Um, so I don't know. So I'm I'm finding like the minim- minimization of what happened to Lucy Flores and Amy Lapos as just sort of baffling when I think if this were in a work context, people would be much more shocked. And if this were to happen to... Um, to people at their own workplaces, I think that's something they would feel more strongly about. Um, and and then the other thing is that, like, looking back at Anita Hill and, and you know, like, the kind of behavior that she was complaining about wasn't, mm. you know, she never alleged that, like, Clarence Thomas tried to rape her. He just did other you know, like, I think there's a story of him putting his, like, pubic hair in a Coca-Cola can and, like, offering it to her. There was, like, no touching, right? Like, it's not like he physically placed his hands on her, but we all agree that it was a form of sexual harassment. We all see the impropriety of that. And it's interesting to me that, like, the Biden who created an environment in which Anita Hill's experience was dismissed and minimized is the same Joe Biden who is now reflecting on his own uncomfortable touching of other people and does not appear to have evolved very much.
0: We've just heard clips today, starting with the Majority Report doing a deep dive on Beto. Anna Kasparian from the Young Turks did a breakdown on Buttigieg. Democracy Now looked at the crime bill and foreign policy horrors of Biden's past. The Michael Brooks Show gave an overview of Biden's dramatically non-progressive record. The Real News Network looked more closely at Biden's coziness with the banks. The PBS NewsHour discussed Biden's Me Too problem and the evolution of the movement. And finally, we just heard humorless queers talking about how often Biden is going to demonstrate that he just doesn't get it and likely never will. Members will be getting a bonus episode with additional thoughts on Beto and probably even more angles on Biden. To hear that and all of our bonus content, sign up as a full member on Patreon at the $6 a month level. Though if that's too steep for you, still consider supporting our work. It's incredibly needed and you can get the show ad free for only two bucks a month. Though if you can give more, we have higher levels and would gratefully accept any amount of support you want to throw our way. And remember that our weekly poll to help choose the topics we cover each week is free to everyone. You can simply follow the show on Patreon, no financials involved, and take part in the poll each weekend to help guide the course of the show. Visit patreon.com slash left for all the details. Of course, you can find that link in the show notes on the device you're using to listen. And now, we'll hear from you.
17: Hi Jay, this is Laura in Alameda, California. I just finished listening to the Native Peoples episode and it included the voicemail from Stacy from the San Francisco Bay Area in response to my voicemail. And I think Stacy brought up some very good points. I really wasn't, I don't really disagree with most of the things that she said. I think there's a little bit of a disconnect and it's kind of hard to pinpoint where it is, but I will say I am not arguing against having a female presidential candidate and you know, the New Zealand prime minister has just beautifully exemplified what a, an incredible job a woman can do in a high political office. And man, I would love to have somebody like that running our country right now. My, um, uh, concerns in that episode about, you know, I I said that you know I really want to see a Sanders and Warren ticket. That would be my my ideal. And, you know, I said that strategically, I think that it might be a bit better for Sanders to be on top. But when I look at the race right now, I see two real progressives, Sanders and Warren. And I want one of them to be president. I think, you know, either one of them is is they're both strong policy-wise and they're both going to take on the corporations and They're going to move us forward and I think if they teamed up together, it would be better and the sooner they did it, that that, that would be better too because we could be concentrating on on putting things together quickly and stop wasting so much time and energy and resources, which is what we seem to be doing now that there's all these candidates, just way too many candidates. And Stacey didn't really uh, talk about that issue, which is kind of more my real concern is that we seem to have these two strong progressives, and then most of the rest of the, from what I can see, these rest of the candidates, they're they're pretty centrist, and a lot of them are just you know just typical corporate Democrats, and that's just not going to work, um, not for the changes that we need, uh, not not with the the impact of what the Republicans have spent decades doing to this country. So um, I want the most progressive president we can get. I don't want Sanders or Warren or, or certainly the worst case scenario is if both of them got eliminated during the um uh the the primary to, to find the primary for the uh uh democratic nomination. So I was my my thoughts about um Bernie possibly being, you know, the better person on the top of the ticket is kind of the strategic question and why I was hoping to hear a little bit from some men is to kind of get a get a response for them. I mean, I think women uh, have been leading the resistance doing most of the work of the resistance. So I think they're going to vote for whoever, you know, is on the democratic side without a problem. And obviously Trump has his hardcore supporters who are never going to abandon him. But the question is, is for white men, in particular, would someone like Sanders be more appealing to them versus Warren? Or are they ready to handle having a woman president and willing to get behind her as a candidate uh, and go gung ho? So I want whoever is most progressive. So Bernie or Elizabeth Warren, both of these two people, I think, are fantastic public servants. And either one of them will be a fantastic president. And I just don't want to see us uh, wasting so much time, you know, and I certainly don't want to see them, either one of them get eliminated early in the process because um, I think they are our best hope for gaining any sense of repair to this country. Anyway, thank you. Thank you, Stacey, for making a response. Good points. And I hope more people will keep chiming in. So, Have a good one. Peace and progress, everybody. Hi,
18: Jay. This is Sarah Saunders in Cool, California. And um, you asked a question today on the show I listened to about what our feelings were, where we think we are in the election cycle, what our perceptions are of the candidates at this point in time or any associated issues. So here's my feelings. Number one, it's way early, and I think that we're all kind of siloed. There are several of course, people listening to this of the left or any of them numerous leftist podcasts are going to have some strong feelings about the candidate. but it's awfully early, and most people don't really have an opinion yet; they have a feeling. <laughs> You know, they feel this way about somebody, but they don't really, they don't know how the person's record is. They don't know what the issues are. I'm always amazed that regular people oftentimes haven't even heard of Medicare for All or the Green New Deal. And you have to explain it to them. And I'm talking about, you know, not super, super involved politically people, obviously, but just regular, average, intelligent, normal, you know, office workers. That's who I work with um my own surprises about this the campaign so far is that, yeah, I am kind of deeply disappointed that the female candidates are not doing better, Um, especially Elizabeth Warren and Tulsi Gabbard. I know Tulsi has some problems. I know she's uh, made some problematic statements in her past, but I also think that she's a fairly strong anti-war candidate in an era that uh, many of us are just very, very tired of the never-ending wars that our country is in. And um, I think she's, you know, a fairly decent candidate. And Elizabeth Warren is a stellar candidate. She's absolutely fantastic. She would be my first choice if Bernie wasn't running. But because Bernie is running and because I really trust him to not have to be pushed as hard as the other candidates, already be leaning in the right way and having a long record of saying these same things over and over for decades, you know, I trust him. I trust Elizabeth Warren too. I believe that she would do her best. And I think, honestly, I I know that there's a big push for Nina Turner amongst people that support Bernie, for Nina Turner to be the vice president. And I would be happy with Nina. Nina's great. She's fantastic. She's a real rabble rouser. She really gets you going. Uh, But I also think Elizabeth Warren would make a great vice president. However, you know, like I said, I am deeply disappointed that all of these guys are coming out of left field and they're getting a lot of um, airplay. They're getting a lot of attention and they're like not very good candidates. You know, I'm talking about the generic white male guys, you know, uh, Buttigieg. Yang, Beto O'Rourke, you know, these are all the only thing they've got going for them is they're is they're relatively young. They're not progressive and they don't have the chops yet, in my opinion. As far as Joe Biden goes, he's got baggage. He's got a lot of baggage. I don't think our lives would improve measurably under his presidency, I don't even know if he would fight for it. I think there'd be a lot of compromising. I think it would be the typical thing that Democrats do when they're elected, where they already, you know, they they go to the bargaining table already having given up everything that you could possibly bargain with you know, and then they end up capitulating to the, you know, more conservative point of view. I don't think we're going to get anywhere with him. And I think that our country will get worse and worse. And I'm really concerned about the state of our country right now. I'm really concerned about the the level of anger that's out there. And I don't think that Joe Biden is the solution to this. I'm, you know, I, I wouldn't, personally go after any of the candidates and i am kind of irritated that there is a big push now on the part of centrist them that we just not question anybody that we just all you know hold hands and sing kumbaya that's no way to run a primary and we cannot find a good delegate by doing that i'm open to listening to criticisms about bernie you know i am not open to anybody making personal attacks uh, making fun of Buddha Judge's name, for instance. You know, making fun of Biden or Bernie for being too old. You know, all of that is mm. n- beside the point. <laughs> so, anyway, that's my opinion. Thank you for asking. I really appreciate you asking. I'm really interested in
17: hearing where other people are at on this.
2: Hey Jay, this is Anthony in Utah. Been a long time listener kinda keeping to the background. Calling in response to I think it was episode twelve sixty seven. There was a little discussion at the end about the strategic uh idealism. And I'll be the first to admit that when it looked like Sanders was gonna lose, that I put myself into the accelerationist camp that You know, the best thing that could happen for the movement was to have the worst outcomes possible to galvanize everyone. Maybe those movements could have flourished under a Clinton presidency, but I'm not so sure about that. In the years since, it's been much more clear that the Trump presidency is just taking the wind out of the sails of people. Like, sure, you always have people that are activists, radicals, that are always going to keep pushing, but the average everyday person, the people within the movement that don't enjoy privilege to be able to fight for the movement and for their lives, they're taking a back seat. And fewer and fewer people that have been apolitical in the past and were... Somewhat galvanized by a Bernie Kidd candidacy, they've given up. Strategically, I don't think it was a good move, even if we could have had any kind of influence on the outcome. At the end of the day, we're stuck with the presidency that we've got to fight through that a lot of people didn't expect it would turn out as bad as it has. Anyway, thank you, Jay. Appreciate all you do. Keep
9: fighting. Hi, Jay. Uh, my name's Corey. I'm from New Jersey. I'm 27 years old. I've listened to the newest episode of Best of the Left uh, several times um, at this point. And I'm convinced that you curated it specifically for me I've been dealing with a dark depression for a very long time and your show gave me something that uh, I thought that I might never see again and that's hope Um, I have hope for the future hope for the future of politics hope for the future of my generation, I was just so comforted by the idea that people of my generation are taking care of each other, and uh, I just can't thank you enough for giving me this feeling that I never thought I would have again. Thank you so much, Jay.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, and the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. And first of all, thanks to Corey for the very touching message we just heard and context for everyone else. He said that he was referring to the most recent episode, but because of the timing of the show and all of that, uh, I I didn't hear his message until I was prepping for today's show, but it actually came in a few days ago, I think just as the most recent episode was being published, and so he's referring to the one before that. Uh, So he's talking about the, um, the Great Transition episode that I sort of came up with, sort of a Stroke of inspiration as I, I heard a few clips that I, you know, I, I saw the thread and and realized I thought I could pull together an, an interesting episode, not as I normally do on one topic, but on sort of a variety of topics that I realized had more connection than uh, than we usually think they do, and and I was curious how that was going to go. I didn't know what people's reactions would be Uh, so far. Corey's is the only direct response to that episode, giving an opinion. So, so far so good, I guess. And then secondly, uh, in in response to Anthony, I mean, of course, I'm glad to hear he's come around on the Bernie or bust uh, accelerationist theory of change. Uh, I I was never on board with that, but I, I will say that I am also sort of surprised at at the level of exhaustion that people are feeling, the, the amount that people have been checking out, uh, usually when your opposition is in power, that is empowering and energizing for people. People usually get uh, complacent when their own person is pow- is in power. That's what happened to, for instance, like the anti-war movement under Obama. But, I, you know, I, I guess it sort of ebbs and flows in different ways. So under Obama, a movement like uh, the anti-war movement loses steam, but movements like Black Lives Matter and uh, Occupy Wall Street have oxygen to flourish in, in a way that they can't otherwise. And now under Trump... Uh, Movements like uh, the women's movement and Me Too, which are really direct responses to Trump's specific brand of horribleness, can flourish. There's a lot of energy there, but it snuffs out the other things, Black Lives Matter, uh, etc. So, you know, usually you, you think like when when the opposition is in impa- power, so like to, to put it this way. There's a funny old phrase uh, from The Nation magazine, very old, very progressive magazine. The old saying goes, what's bad for the country is good for the nation, meaning that when conservative politicians are in power, more people are energized to buy The Nation magazine and take action on progressive issues. And uh, that... Was true for a certain period of time, uh, right after the twenty sixteen election, maybe again, sort of just leading up to twenty eighteen. But people, uh, they they got so 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 energized and so 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 exhausted so fast that um, it's it's been a very strange election cycle. And, and so for for those in the Bernie or bus movement who who uh, subscribed, as Anthony did, to the accelerationist. Uh, theory of change that let's just push the whole system to be as bad as it can be so it can collapse and we can rebuild from the ashes or or whatever they thought. Uh, th- there's like a grain of legitimacy to that way of thinking, the idea that if if we – Push the system to be worse, uh, you know, allow someone like Trump to get in, that it will really energize the progressive movement. And as Anthony is realizing, it, it deflated more than we expected. It, it's a result of outrage fatigue, which I, I think is happening at higher levels than anyone predicted. So from my perspective, I, I would rather be fighting complacency than uh, outrage fatigue any day. Just from a purely cynical political perspective, I would much rather fight against complacency than against outrage fatigue. And then you add in all of the actual measurable harm and suffering that is caused by conservative politics, uh, then it's absolutely no question. If you have any thoughts on any of this, uh, anything on the election, anything we heard in the show today, any of the voicemails, uh, please keep the comments coming in. The number to dial, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash best of left. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely write on the device you're using to listen so coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of washington dc my name is jay and this has been the best of the left podcast coming to you every tuesday and friday thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com